all the sort of grassroots Ron Pauly sort of libertarians who thought that economic liberalization would predominantly benefit people like them sort of turned out to be wrong. I mean, it did somewhat benefit people like them, but I think more it benefited smart people, including smart immigrants, high skilled immigrants got a lot of the benefits from that economic liberalization. The people who like did all the education, you know, the, the nerdy people benefited a ton from economic liberalization. Middle-class white folks out in the suburbs didn't necessarily benefit as much as they thought they would. So they no longer felt they're on the top rung of society. So they thought, what's the point of this? Why am I doing this? Liberalization didn't deliver a lot of the results that a lot of those people wanted or imagined. So then they ditched it. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Noah, welcome back to episode two. All right. Excited to be here. So today we're going to go through your libertarian uh, article, which also gave a little bit of a kind of zoomed out overview of your thoughts on libertarianism over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, you, I think you, you wrote a blog post in 2011 uh, on, on libertarianism based on your experience in Japan. Um, and, and you start out the piece by kind of uh, enumerating your different critiques of libertarianism over the years. Why, why don't we start there? Well, yeah. So, you know, when I was going to grad school, libertarianism was still very much a strong and, and living, powerful ideology, especially in economic spaces, right? If you were an economist, People would just say libertarian things all the time and, um, and you know, reference Robert Nozick or um, various other foundational figures and kind of the, the core ideas that they developed. And so you sort of had to contend with this idea. Um, and so I, I spent a fair amount of time thinking about it. Um, so, you know, the Japan piece that you talked about was one where I basically, I was in Japan uh, to do some research and I realized that a lot of things that we take for granted in America as being free are things that you have to pay for in Japan. So for example, in America, there's lots of places to just sit down. And in Japan, there's not many places to sit down. In America, there's lots of trash cans to throw away your trash in cities. In Japan, there is not. Um, and so, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, okay, so if you take libertarian logic to its extreme, you would have people paying to go outside and breathe the air. Why not? It's just a little bit of money, right? It wouldn't be much. It wouldn't like rob people of their ability. Everyone would still be able to breathe. You just have to pay a tiny little toll to do it or to take a drink of water from your tap or blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, this doesn't mean it would bankrupt people and make them all impoverished, et cetera. But, but the problem with this is that it creates transaction costs. It means that every little thing you do in life that, you know, you have to think about whether to do it. You have to think about whether the price is right. You have to think about bargain hunting. You have to think about whether or not it's worth not stepping outside because the cost of air is a little too high right now. And you're going to, you know, the, the market discipline works by people doing a bunch of transactions, comparing prices and price shopping and deciding if things are worth it. And so if you had to do that for every little thing in the world, that would suck. So transaction costs are sort of one of these big arguments that I had. Um, now, since I wrote that, uh, Tokyo has put in a lot more benches and um, uh, not a lot more trash cans, unfortunately, but uh, definitely public bathrooms they've put in. So so they're sort of, you know, listening to this, this idea and taking heed. But um, another problem I had with, with philosophical libertarianism was this idea that I called the Tamerlane principle. And uh, did you read that post that I wrote, the Tamerlane yeah. principle? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, so so for those who don't know, Tamerlane is the nickname of uh, Timur, who was a um, an, sort of an Uzbek-type conqueror from Central Asia uh, in the um, in like the late 1300s. And he just, you know, conquered a bunch of places like India, Iran, uh, whatever, and just built mountains of skulls, etc. And the idea is um, these places were not strong enough to resist him, weren't strong enough to resist his armies. And had they had modern economies and modern sort of production processes and, you know, modern states, they might have been strong enough to resist Tamerlane. Because when you look at conquerors later on, you see that a lot of countries do successfully resist them. And um, and so we don't have many Tamerlanes anymore. Uh, Vladimir Putin is about the best we've got right now. And so uh, because of this, I said there's, you know, you if you want to have liberty, not just today, but also tomorrow, you've got to provide public goods that provide for a common defense and not just things directly related to the military, but things related to building up the economy. So, for example, if a road network, a publicly built road network makes sense economically, you want to do that so that your country is stronger, so that you're less likely to get conquered. And that may seem a roundabout way of justifying a road network today. But in 2011, that was the kind of way libertarians wanted you to argue with them. And so I did. And um, and uh, a third argument that I made was basically that, uh, which is very much relevant today, actually, is the idea that liberty isn't just about the federal government. And when you when you read like Robert Nozick or whoever, you, you know, they, there's often this idea that there's the government and there's individuals and that's it. But in reality, there's all these other institutions that have a lot of power in our lives. So, for example, your boss can tell you to do stuff at work, um, you know, your church, your, uh, you know, your university can, uh, you know, can have a massive effect on your life without ever putting you in jail. It can punish you for stuff that's not a crime, you know, so, so there's all these, uh, what, you know, what I called local bullies in that post, but, uh, you know, contrasted against the government, which is the big bully. But now I, I prefer to call them mezzanine institutions between the government and people that exert power over people's daily lives. And the question is, is it worth applying ideas like, you know, rights and freedom to those institutions as well? Um, and I think that that people intuitively think, yes, it is. So, for example, if if Twitter and Facebook censor speech on their platforms. You can say, you know, XKCD, the web comic pointed this out and everybody always points out, oh, you know, it's not a free speech issue because the the First Amendment only covers things that the government does and Facebook and Twitter are not the government. So if it's not the, and, and that's a surprisingly like Nozickian argument, you know, classic libertarian argument that says that if, if it's not the government taking away your freedoms, you still have the freedom. Because Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, are just private citizens. And what they do is essential is essentially similar to your neighbors doing, you know, just deciding they don't want to talk to you is the same as being kicked off Twitter and Facebook. But it's not because <laughs> we recognize that there are mezzanine levels of power between the federal government and normal people. And um, and so this is important because, you know, when, when people talk about free speech, they don't just mean whether or not the government will actually lock you up for saying things. They also mean whether or not you're job can be taken away and ruined by you saying things or, you know, uh, or whether you can be kicked off social media and have your social life disrupted for saying certain things. Freedom to people is what feels free, not necessarily what some philosopher decided, you know, sort of was deontologically, uh, you know, the, the rule about what constitutes freedom. And so, um, 
so I think that was sort of my third argument there. And these are pretty, you know, these are pretty abstruse arguments, right? These are not like, usually when people argue against libertarians, they're like, well, we should have more taxes because that would help poor people. You know, it's like, yes, that's true. But then let's, I, I wanted to think about the philosophical basis of libertarianism with some of these arguments. And now, you know, um, a decade later, it seems like none of that really matters. We've had such a change in our intellectual landscape. What, what was the libertarian movement, what was really real in 2011 uh, now seems like a memory or even a joke. Uh, it's, it's just completely fractured uh, into a number of disparate parts. And so reading some of these arguments there uh, from 2011, you can have this sense of, well, who were you arguing with? No, there really were libertarians. I promise they existed. Yeah. We'll get to the fracturing, but first I just want to kind of summarize what, what, what we've said. So your, your first reason, the transaction costs, it reminds me as to why micropayments haven't worked on the internet yet. Um, people have wanted micropayments for, for so long and it's just, it creates too much friction to do activities. Um, and so that, that makes a lot of intuitive sense based on what we've seen with micropayments. Um, and then also your, your other reasons, it seems can be boiled down to, Hey, live and let live doesn't really make sense in a world where there are bullies. And maybe those bullies are local organizations. Maybe they're international, uh, like, like Putin, like it, it's just unfeasible. And, you know, if you live and let live, you won't, you know, in order in, in name of freedom and a bully comes in, you won't have the luxury of having the freedom later if the bully comes in and takes too much power. Is that a fair summary? Right. And and then the, and the third one was just about these other institutions. Yeah. And and so before talking about, you know, why libertarianism kind of died or fractured, let's talk about why people got so excited about it in the first place. Is, is this combination of kind of, um, you know, social libertarianism, i.e., you know, a d diversity and pluralism of how people, you know, let people live their lives the way they want to live it. Um, also combined with sort of just this belief that um, it would be better for economic growth and prosperity if uh, the government, you know, um, let things be more, uh, let things, you know, more things go to the private sector because they'd be more efficient, um, et cetera. Or, or like, why was there so much libertarian energy to begin with? Well, you know, I mean, I think there were a lot of reasons. One is that we, you know, we had a, a very strong state coming out of World War II and the early Cold War. And I think that some of libertarianism was a pushback against that. I think that some of libertarianism was uh, just a sort of a manifestation of self-expression uh, that was made possible due to new technologies. You know, in the old days, you sort of, it was very expensive and difficult to leave your hometown, to not rely on your family for as a support network, to basically be independent in life. And then starting in the, you know, maybe the 50s and 60s in the post-war period, it started becoming uh, you know, economically feasible to, to just get a car, drive around, live on your own, do what you wanted uh, without people constantly looking, over, you know, constantly looking over your shoulder and policing you. I think that, that that spurred a desire for individual freedom that ended up contributing. And I, I think there was also um, uh, there was also the history of, of sort of um, racial politics in America. You had uh, and class politics. You had, you know, LBJ coming in. Um, in the in the sixties determined to use big government to wipe out poverty and you know wipe out racial gaps. And then there was a lot of progress made in that direction, but it didn't, you know, obviously didn't completely succeed. And I think there was a there was a backlash against a lot of the things that the government was being used to do. You know, people um a lot of the conservative movement in the late seventies was getting people mad that uh you know black people were getting welfare. Uh that was a big part of it. Um 
And so, you know, Alberto Alessina, the economist, has has uh, you know written a paper on this because called "Why Doesn't the U.S. Have a European Style Welfare State?" So while Europe was building our welfare states, America built something like a welfare state. You know, we spend a, we do actually spend a lot of money on redistribution, whatever. But then we didn't um, uh, we didn't quite have what what Europe has. And one reason was uh, that Alessina uh, cites is just explicitly because of the racial conflict. And so. Um, and so I think those were some of the main reasons that libertarianism became such a big deal in the, the sort of late 20th century. Hey there, Eric here. We're looking for sponsors to partner with us on our show. If you or your business might be interested, send us a note at eric at turpentine.co or through our website. That's eric at turpentine.co. And so now let's talk about why it stopped becoming a big deal. Like talk about the fracturing or the loss of interest or why did, why did libertarians lose? Well, on the uh, on the economic side, I would say there um, there were essentially three pillars of economic libertarianism. The first was low taxes, the second was uh, free trade, and the third was deregulation. And we ended up doing a lot more of the first two than the third, but we did some deregulation. And I think that in the uh, in the two thousands, all of these things turned like went badly all at the same time. Uh, so tax cuts, you had, uh, you know, Kennedy's tax cuts back in the 60s had seemed to produce some economic growth, although it's hard to tell uh, because macroeconomic evidence is difficult, but it seemed to produce some economic growth. And, um, uh, you know, Reagan's tax cuts, maybe a bit less, uh, but maybe still some. And then by the time, you know, we, we kept cutting these these tax rates. Uh, and then um, by the time that that. Uh, you know, George W. Bush started cutting taxes. We couldn't detect any noticeable bump to investment or anything or working hours, anything in the economy. If there was a positive effect from the Bush tax cuts, we just couldn't detect it. So tax cuts, it was like had reached their their logical end and uh, and people started being against them. And the second one was free trade, which actually, if you look at the history of free trade in the late 20th century, it went pretty well. Um, people who lost their jobs because of, say, Japanese auto competition tended to get jobs that were just about as good. Um, and so there was some churn as a result of this and some, you know, there were some competitive fights among companies and whatnot. But in the end, uh, trade with Japan and Europe and even trade with some poor countries like Indonesia, you know, to do cheap labor. Ultimately, these didn't really hurt the United States because um well, for, for various reasons, but we, we didn't really get hurt by those things. And by the 90s, we were still doing great. And, um, and then things fall off a cliff after 2001. Um, in the 2000s, things fall off a cliff because a very different player comes into the world trading regime, and that's China. And China is just so big, and it's so poor, and its cost advantage is so huge, and it's, you know, which is also from various government policies and being sort of willing to tolerate environmental and labor destruction and all that stuff too, but also just because China is extremely good at mobilizing resources to lower cost. Um, China just dropped like a, like a nuclear bomb on the world trading system. And suddenly the effects of trade on American workers changed. And economists started finding that the workers who were put out of a job by Chinese competition, unlike the workers who had been put out of a job by Japanese and German competition in the you know 70s and 80s, never got their good jobs back. They never found new good jobs. They just went on welfare. They got shitty jobs or whatever. Um, and so there was this big negative effect on, on U.S. workers and U.S. labor markets from China. And so therefore, free trade 
seem to kind of uh, fail us at the same time. And finally, deregulation. Uh, the deregulations that Carter did, which were about transportation and energy, seemed to go quite well. But then Clinton deregulated finance industry, and that seemed to come back and really bite us in the, uh, you know, the crisis of 2008, which most people now agree was, was caused by financial deregulation, especially in the uh, derivatives markets. So allowing highly complex, uh, you know, weird structured derivatives, essentially blew up banks. Um, and that caused the banking crisis, which caused the economic uh, recession crisis in 2008. So you had tax cuts failing, free trade failing, and deregulation failing all in the same decade. I think that delivered sort of a mighty blow to the economic side of libertarianism. What about the other side of libertarianism? Well, yeah. The, so the social side, I think some things, you know, still kept going strong. You know, you still saw campaigns for, I would say that campaigns for gay marriage are certainly libertarian. You know, the Koch brothers would support that. Uh, campaigns for legalized marijuana. So you didn't see a big collapse in that. But what you did see was a fracturing within the libertarian movement. And you saw a lot of intellectual libertarians get, uh, you know, get really, um, uh, you know, progressive, uh, you know, in social issues. Um, and uh, people like Will Wilkinson, you know, you can look at him, he was a libertarian writer in, in, you know, in like 2011, he was writing Things like we need to bring the, the goal of society should be to bring as much as possible within the market, you know, and then by by late 2010s, by the end of that decade, he was just writing like big sort of fairly generic anti-racist uh, rants. Uh, not saying that's anything wrong with that, you know, like I'm not saying he's wrong about it, but but he had he had progressed from libertarianism to to, you know, very strong progressivism. And th those were called the libertarians. And on the other side. You, uh, there had always been a, uh, you know, sort of um, a racist streak in the libertarian movement. You saw this with Ron Paul's newsletters, which consistently aired uh, kind of racist stuff. And uh, you saw all those people, basically, a lot of people had seen libertarianism as a way of not giving their money or support to black people. Um, although that's not necessarily what the intellectual libertarians wanted you know, that's that's what some of the grassroots libertarians and places like Texas where I grew up, that's what they were thinking, you know, and, and you could see that in the sort of the newsletters that some of the grassroots libertarians would consume and in the actions of some of the grassroots libertarian organizations, which were never large. There were not a lot of these people. Right. It was never a big grassroots movement. But then so essentially all those people just went and became right wingers. You know, when Trump came along. They just became Trumpists. You know, they 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 discarded all the brouhaha about free trade and, and you know, whatever. And they were just like, OK, I'll, like Trump was not a free market libertarian. Right. He he uh, he was against free trade and against basically, uh, you know, free markets in every way. He sort of did tax cuts, but they sort of weren't, to be honest. Anyway, so so they all just jumped on the Trump train. And um, and the reason is because uh, his attitudes toward racial issues. Uh, aligned with theirs. And so you had this, 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 you know, left wing versus right wing fracturing on the social issues, even as you had comprehensive sort of, uh, but maybe temporary failure on the, uh, on the economic issues. I think that was a blow that the libertarian movement couldn't withstand. And so nobody really kept talking about being a libertarian, except for a few last holdouts at the Cato Institute. T Tyler Cowen himself even evolved to a state capacity libertarian. Like, how do you make sense of, of, of that evolution or, or the peer group that that represents? You had some intellectuals 
who were who were libertarian and they and they basically uh, or at least in the general libertarian sphere and, and Tyler Cowen was never like a doctrinaire libertarian at all right he was always he was always a guy who had some libertarianish ideas and then some other ideas he was a, an eclectic sort of person and so a lot of folks like him looked at this issue and they said well you know maybe the libertarians best of luck to them but i'm not that interested in culture warring and the the sort of like grassroots right wing libertarians like whatever with those guys you know go do your thing um but then but there were a lot of old of ideas in the old libertarian movement that need to be salvaged and maybe they need to be updated maybe they need to be modified but they need to be salvaged in some way and so they started working intellectually on a project that I think Tyler Cowen called state capacity libertarianism and that, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really know there, there's other people who work on that kind of thing. Like, um, like the Institute for progress people, Alex Stapp and Caleb yep. Watney, like the people at the economic innovation group. Some, some, this is a very intellectual thing. These are think tankers, there aren't boots on the ground for this, right? There's no grassroots to this yet. And so, but intellectually, these people started working on this idea of, uh, modifying the old libertarian economic ideas so that they work better because they sort of failed in the 2000s. Let's update and modernize them for a different world. And, uh, and this is an intellectual project and it was pretty, it's pretty divorced from cultural issues. So you, it's, it's narrower, it's more narrowly focused. You don't see, you know, old libertarianism was definitely had huge cultural, uh, issues. You know, it was, it had some, some left-wing aspects of being in favor of things like gay marriage and it had some right-wing aspects in, you know, such as, as, um, you know, being against, I don't know, affirmative action and, uh, and, um, even some libertarians were against the civil rights act of 1964. Um, and so you had those, those social issues in the old libertarian movement, but these new intellectuals like, like Tyler and, and Institute for progress people, they're not thinking about social issues very much. They're sort of saying, let's just think about the economic issues and figure out how to get those right or more right than they, than they were in the two thousands. And then, and, and just, you know, watch how the culture wars evolve and shake out to get grassroots buy-in. You always have to do culture wars because that's what most people think about and understand. Like people, you know, are not thinking about the, the like finer aspects of like tax policy or like whether immigrants will shift out the labor demand curve in addition to the labor supply curve. They're, they're thinking like who out there hates me and wants to get me and who do I hate and want to get, you know, they're thinking about stuff like that. That's, that's culture war. I think a lot of libertarians were also disillusioned when they saw um, corporations start to take stands on, on these social issues. Because um, I think libertarians, to some degree, or some of them were trying to depoliticize things. And when even corporations became so politicized, it, it felt maybe disillusioning to them. I, you know, I, I don't actually know about that as much. Like, I have not seen as much of that. I, I can imagine that that's, that's reasonably true. And, and um and, you know, I know people have complained about like woke capital. Yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy comes to mind. Right. Right. Vivek. Yeah. But I think that probably just contributes to the general desire to, uh, of the, of intellectual sort of reformist libertarians to sort of put culture wars on the shelf for a while and think about how to get economics right. Because if you get economics wrong, it's just going to intensify culture wars. If you impoverish your country by doing stupid economic policies, then there's just going to be more conflict over, you know, like pride month or something like that. It's not going to help, right? It's going to hurt. And getting the economics right can be to the benefit of all. 
while culture wars are often generally more zero-sum game. And so I think that, um, and, and I sympathize deeply with the, the urge to look away from culture wars, which will always be there, right? America has its culture wars and we always will. We had them even during the sort of supposedly most harmonious aspect, like times in our history, even in the 1950s and the 1990s, we had strong culture wars going on extremely strong culture wars and people forget like the 90s there were people just shooting abortion doctors you know like there were uh, there were bombs there were like the fbi was raiding right-wing people and shooting them like there was there was a lot of stuff right new gingrich and people just you misremember these times as as times of social harmony and why well partly it's geopolitics you know the soviet union fell and, and china had not yet emerged as a major competitor but I think also partly it's just because of economics. You know, everyone is making some money and in the 90s. And so they thought, well, you know, yeah, there's people out there who care about these culture wars, but I'm doing fine. So uh, and that, so I think economic prosperity is a, is doesn't stop culture wars, but it certainly reduces the salience of them. It reduces the degree to which we think our futures are predicated on the outcomes of those culture wars. And I think that's so. So I agree with this idea that let's get the economics right, make sure we get the economics right, and then maybe culture wars will get easier to, to resolve or at least tamp down a bit. The, the counter to that maybe is like, as there's more money or as people, um, as there's more economic growth, there's also more money for culture wars. <laughs> like there's more money donated to these organizations that specialize in, in you know, fighting one, one side of it. Um, of course, they would describe it differently and is maybe like San Francisco an example, right? There's been so much money um, made in San Francisco and, and some of that money has gone to organizations that, um, you know, are, um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious how you, how you would think about that. Like, how confident do you feel that if, if we have more economic growth, there'll be less culture war? Well, pretty confident because if you look at San Francisco, that's it's a perfect example of what I'm thinking about. Because in San Francisco, the, the sort of... Uh, wars between affinity groups and interest groups a lot of them are caused by the shortage of housing it's it's not just economic growth you can you can have economic growth in the area just by bringing in a bunch of rich people to work at rich companies and price other people out because nobody builds any housing to accommodate the newcomers and so average incomes go up and you're like we average incomes are up and yet no one can afford to live here anymore and so you know uh want to hear a want to hear a crazy fact yes please that rents as a percentage of income have gone down and down and down relentlessly in San Francisco. Huh? Isn't that crazy? Wow. That's so crazy. You can, I, I promise you this is true. You can fire up uh, Fred, the database and see this, but then the reason is because, um, the poor people have all moved. Everyone who couldn't afford rent moved. And so a bunch of people with extremely high incomes came into the city and rents rose a lot, but not quite enough to cancel out the increase wow. in incomes from rich people moving in and poor people moving out. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so that's why this is, you know. Uh, by, by the way, if you want to look at how affordable a city is, the right metric is actually um, how affordable it is for like, you know, middle-class people. So fix the income level and then look at, uh, you know, look at the slope basically of that curve. Anyway, I digress. R related question for you. If you took out all the funding that rich tech people have given to various sort of local government organizations, um, how different do you think are the outcomes in San Francisco? Well, you know, I, that's a good question and I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Um, there are people who study the effect of money on 
politics. And I think the consensus at this point is that in terms of national elections like president um, and in terms of big statewide elections like senator, money matters very little. Like who gets money matters very little. Um, money matters in terms of things like lobbying. Um, but then in terms of local races, I think money matters a lot more. Uh, but I think that it's, it's still hard to tell. So the answer is I don't know. And uh, that's an interesting question. Um, but what I, what I do think about San Francisco is if, the, if we manage to get housing right, if we manage to build a city where everyone had a place to live, and if we manage to get transit right, you know, if you could easily get over from, you know, Oakland to SF to work and then feel safe on the, on the trip. And um, if you could do that, and if it, this felt like an easy place to live, I think that the culture wars here would be much less intense. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I think that that in terms of economic growth, it's not necessarily growth here in San Francisco. It's it's affordability. Yeah. And how tractable do you think either of those things are? Well, Bay Area is really hard because of the urban fragmentation. So, you know, San Francisco by rights ought to include the south suburbs like San Bruno, you know, like South San Francisco and all those areas. And those places should be places where there's just lots of housing. And then there should be lots of trains that go up between those places and downtown. And then people should commute from those southern places to the, you know, the center of the city. And that's how it should work. Um, you know, and Oakland should be built up a whole lot. And that should, you know, San Jose should be built up a whole lot. And they should have this multi-centric city um, that's similar to the New York area, right? We should have that. But one problem is that New York, in New York, like, you know, Queens is New York, Bronx is New York, Stat all of Staten Island is New York City. That's huge. And that's like, um, and so that's New York City is just gigantic. And that's, uh, that's one reason why you can get this unified provision of public service. Like you can have the, the, you know, New York subway go out to everywhere, basically, or other trains. And so that's one difficulty in San Francisco is we don't have this unified transit planning. And in terms of housing, uh, because we have this urban fragmentation, it means every small city you know, can every little city can block housing there and say, well, we're not going to build housing. You build housing over where you are, not in my backyard. And then everyone says not in my backyard. And so it ends up going in no one's backyard. Um, and so that's urban fragmentation makes this very difficult. That said, I think we're making progress at the state level. We've seen, you know, umpteen pro, uh, you know, YIMBY bills get passed by the California legislature and signed by Gavin Newsom, underrated governor, by the way. And um, people love to hit on Gavin Newsom, but he gets he gets some stuff done. Um, hot take: uh, Gavin Newsom underrated. Is, is say more. W why is yeah. like why is he hate, hate, what is he hated for, and why do you respond to it? Well, you know, one reason people don't like him is because California is a one party state, and Gavin Newsom is a machine politician who can't do the Democratic machine. And people take out some of their frustrations on the one partiness of the machine on him, uh, because one party states are not great. You know, uh, if the Republican Party could get its act together in California and actually appeal to Hispanic people uh, more than it does, then it would it could make a comeback in the state. Uh, but it can't for various reasons that I don't want to go into. But the fact that the Democrats just control everything means that Newsom has to spend a lot of time kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, signaling or or virtue signaling, whatever, to to various progressive causes, which I'm sure, you know, as for what he believes in, I have no idea. I mean, uh, he may just be a complete amoral careerist, or he may really deeply believe in things. And I don't know. 
and to some degree, I don't care either. But but he definitely has to sort of genuflect to a number of progressive social causes to maintain his credibility. And um, and so I think that's what pisses people off about him. And also the fact that he does, whether or not you think he really has deep seated ideological beliefs, he definitely is a careerist climber and always has been. And I think that turns some people off. Um, also, he looks like Christian Bale from American Psycho. A lot. <laughs> and so anyway, I like Gavin Newsom. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm very much into the, the dark Gavin memes. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm very much into that. You know, that started with dark Brandon yeah. uh, and now right. dark Gavin is like the California equivalent, but it's like, you don't even need to make Gavin Newsom look evil. You just post Christian Bale, <laughs> but he gets stuff done. You know, he's, he's, he's going to enforce the the rena requirements for the first time ever in california you know the, the you know rena requirements it's basically for those who don't know it means you every city has to come up with a credible plan to build a certain number of units of affordable housing and if they don't then the government will allow developers to build anything they want as long as it passes code it's called the builder's remedy and so then you have this jubilee where developers if they want can just come in and build gigantic towers yeah, out in the middle of some leafy suburb. And so it terrifies these cities into into actually planning for more housing and creating density. And and it was it's been on the books forever and was never enforced. And now Gavin Newsom's starting to enforce it and created a whole legal, like new new like legal team to like enforce it and sue cities. And it's just great. They're suing these these cities and they're they're attacking the stasis that has paralyzed the state since the nineteen seventies. I love it. I love it. More power to them. Would you support Gavin as a presidential presidential candidate, like, do, are you that excited about him? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, like, you know, um, presidential candidate. I just have a, a really bad uh, ability to pick who would be a, an electable candidate. Right. Um, you know, like, I don't know if Gavin Newsom would be be electable. I mean, he's done drugs. He slept with his campaign manager's wife. He's just like, <laughs> you know, if you thought Bill Clinton had skeletons in the closet, look <laughs> at this guy. But. Yeah. But maybe people don't care anymore. You know, maybe no one cares. Like Obama was sort of above reproach. Um, but like Trump, was, you know, yeah. we all know about Trump. So <laughs> maybe in the age of, I mean, Gavin has done bad things, but he hasn't done nearly as many bad things as Trump. And so right. like, maybe just no one cares anymore. So maybe he'd win. Um, I don't know. He's, uh, uh, you know, a presidential candidate supposed to come from a swing state. He doesn't. I don't know. Um, yeah. I'd support him. I'd be happy to vote for Gavin Newsom as president. He'd be great. He'd be like, you know, I don't know, like Vladimir Putin would just like turn up in a river somewhere. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> like, dark, who knows the powers of dark Gavin? I don't know. <laughs> I'm saying like I would I would support him, but I don't know how much other people would. Yeah. Well, certainly David Sachs wouldn't. Um, um... Certainly David Sachs would not. Speaking of, uh, let, let's talk about, let's go back to the libertarian piece and talk about the the Republican Party. Why has it become so much more st a statist? Um, like, I feel like it used to be more free market oriented or more, you know, liber libertarian in some ways, but both, both, um, you know, economically and, and culturally, it seems to be, and certainly, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, like super into using the power of the government to, to get, uh, certain, certain outcomes. Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Um, one reason is because uh, all the, uh, including smart immigrants, you know, high-skilled immigrants, got a lot of the benefits from that economic liberalization, 
And, uh, you know, the people who like did all the education went to the top colleges and like got all the degrees and, you know, the, the nerdy people benefited a ton from economic liberalization and from the trans structural transformation of the American economy into a knowledge economy, uh, which, which of which liberalization was one cause. And, um, so I think that, that, you know, just like regular, you know, I don't know, like middle-class white folks out in the suburbs didn't necessarily benefit from, uh, from this as much as they thought they would, or at least not in, in relative terms. Maybe they benefited, but they didn't benefit as much. So they no longer felt they're on the top rung of society. So they thought, what's the point of this? Why am I doing this? And when you see, you see, you know, videos where conservative guys will post like stuff about soulless modern life and just show like some middle-class white guy, like going to his job and oh God, his life is so boring and lame. Um, I think that it didn't, you know, the liberalization didn't deliver a lot of the results that a lot of those people wanted or imagined. Um, and so, so then they ditched it. You know, you see people like Tucker Carlson railing against the free market and railing against neoliberalism and railing against all this stuff, um, partly, you know, against companies that he sees as woke, but like, there's an undercurrent of, you know, like this system didn't benefit you, my audience, the system benefited Asian people and Jewish people and, you know, who knows who else, like whoever you can sort of imagine that Tucker doesn't like, and that you as the Tucker audience are supposed to not like, you, you know, you can imagine that that's who benefited from liber from neoliberalism, which is like a novel name that people use for libertarianism. And so then they, then they say, well, that didn't benefit them. So let's have something else that, that benefits us. And I haven't figured out what that is yet, other than just sort of getting mad online, but you know, they're maybe they're, they, they've soured on the idea of libertarianism. And it is interesting because I mean, both parties disagree on so much, but one thing it seems that they agree on is the power of a big state to, you know, actualize the outcomes that they're hoping to see. Like, it feels like people who are advocating for small, smaller state just are, you know, not winning out. Maybe so, you know, but I think that even people who are skeptical that the state is like efficient at getting things done may still want the state to try to do things because no one else is trying to do them. So yeah. like, for example, I want public housing, right? And I understand that public housing is going to suck in a lot of places. You're going to get your Cabrini Green style places. You're going to get your, not everyone's going to do it right. There are ways to do it that are a lot less subject to crime and, and whatever, but people in a lot of places aren't going to do that. They're just going to throw up some big projects and say like, hey, poor people go there. That's going to happen in some places when, when we make public housing authorities. I know that's going to happen. But the question is, the alternative is just people sleeping under bridges and, and you know, sleeping like 10 to a room and all that old crappy stuff. And like the alternative, if the alternative is even worse, the government doesn't have to necessarily be great at its job if there's knowing el no one else doing the job. And so I think, you know, I think that way. And I think um, a number of people on both sides of the of the political divide think that way. They don't think government is just magical and can just do anything they just think no one else is doing this so who's gonna do it right they think it's just better than the alternative right which is nothing and then there's a question of okay but can you make it more effective can you get better people can you make you know less sort of you can change the incentives of the organizations like i've heard people say something like hey these organizations just get more and more sclerotic over time like every few decades should you just kind of reset them or something like should there be um, so, you know, it's almost in companies, there's all this, people have all these meetings like that they agreed to a long time ago. And then someone does like a meeting Jubilee where you just say, okay, we're, we're no more meetings. And now you have to, you know, rebook them if you want them, that, that kind of thing. 
all these resets sound great. The problem is you can never actually make them happen. Yeah. Because you know, the, the people who, who succeed in that system and the existing system get used to that system and then they don't want to change the system. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, yes, in theory, it'd be great. There's no way of operationalizing it. Right. You, you close the piece by acknowledging that you've been critiquing libertarianism for a long time, but now that things are ch changed, you're actually perhaps wishing for, you know, more of a libertarianism resurgence, you know, your piece is called, where does libertarianism go from here? So talk about what you're hoping for in, in that evolution you're thinking. Right. Well, so, so a lot of the, the, the crack up and fracturing of the libertarian movement and it's sort of like seeming catastrophic loss in the economic arena in the two thousands, both of those two things made libertarianism essentially vanish as a, as a real live, powerful ideology in our public discourse. And, um, and I don't know, I don't think we're ever getting anything quite like what we got, or at least not in our lifetimes, like anything quite like what we got in late 20th century libertarianism. Again, I don't think, I think that movement's dead, but a lot of those ideas deserve not to die and new movements need to pick up a lot of those ideas and carry on with them. And I think that, so a, a great example of this is how um, there's been such a, a push for, um, there's been such a push for deregulation of NEPA. And for those who don't remember, NEPA is an environmental law that allows local people to sue any developer to block a project, a development project, by forcing them to do years of onerous environmental review, which raises costs, massively delays projects for, on average, years, and, uh, and doesn't actually it's not actually directly related to environmental regulation because all it is is a procedural thing where you're allowed to sue to stop all these things and force them to prove that they're not violating environmental laws. And so this is a really bad way of doing things. Farming regulation out to the courts is a really bad way of doing things. Um, often it's government led development projects that, that are being blocked. So for example, transmission projects, the government wants to build some power lines and then individual private individuals keep using NEPA to sue it. And yet the, the new sort of state capacity libertarians are very much against NEPA. They're for dere they're for, for reforming and, and easing this regulation that we have in place because it, so that the government won't step on the government's own toes. You know, that's, that's not something Robert Nozick would have thought about. It's not something that people were really arguing about back in 1995, right? The, the idea that we want government to do good things, but other parts of the government allow private individuals to stop the government from doing things. And therefore we have to remove government regulation to make it less powerful for private, less to make private actors less capable of blocking the government from doing things. It's like you, you've just, you, you're, you're, you've completely just mashed all the old libertarian dichotomies of private versus government completely destroyed them. Like, you know, you, you've got government and private individuals on both sides of this idea. And yet at the core is this idea that regulation is onerous and that regulation is inefficient. Um, and so that's a, that's an important libertarian idea, uh, that was never really, uh, um, fully embraced. I think we deregulated finance, but we didn't really deregulate development, physical development. And because of that, we had an economy in the, in the 90s and especially in the 2000s that was heavily weighted toward finance as opposed to real, you know, building stuff. And I think that that now we realize that this was a mistake and that, it, you know, and now we need to deregulate uh, real stuff, the building of real stuff. And, and that's 
like I said, that doesn't line up with old libertarian uh, dichotomies, but it's something that we need in our modern life. And that's what makes me sort of hopeful and optimistic. And is, is that what people like you and Ezra and Derek are advocating for a little bit? I think so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're, we're seen as, as, as liberals, I guess. Um, I don't know if we're seen as progressives because that word has taken on some other connotations, but I think we're seen as liberals, certainly as Democrats. And we're not, we don't speak a lot to the conservatives. Uh, I, you know, I mean, conservatives are occasionally right about things, but, but they won't listen to me and they won't listen to Ezra Klein. And so we need people on the other side to bring this message to, to conservatives and say, you know, we need the government to build stuff that benefits everybody. And we, because of this, we need some deregulation uh, of, of things like NEPA. And um, maybe in the future, we can have a grassroots libertarian movement or not a, not like the old one, but maybe we can have some sort of grassroots movement for increased, you know, freedom and decreased red tape. Uh, again, just a different kind of movement. And, and when you're saying progressivism, has, has, you're not sure if you're progressive because it's taken some new sort of connotations. Are you referring to sort of, um, you know, more of a focus on social issues than economic or? Exactly. Yeah. So when people say progressive now, they're, they're pretty much entirely thinking about like, you know, transgender medical care things like that um there uh or even things that are like much more symbolic like whether you say latinx right instead of latino yeah and so that's when you say progressive that's what people think nowadays like it or not and um and so yeah i just don't think i have much value add there and this is this is a change for me too because in 2017 i like many people thought it's very important for me to sort of fight the culture war against trumpism you know, and um, and now I feel like we didn't entirely defeat Trumpism. There's still a lot of it out there. Uh, the culture wars have sort of shifted to more classical conservative uh, versus versus progressive sort of dichotomy. It's more like what we saw in the 80s and 90s than it is like what we saw in the late 2010s. Uh, I don't think anyone's really talking. So I, I, I was really scared in the late 2010s that we would have massive sort of um, attempts to revoke citizenship from anyone who had an undocumented immigrant uh, grandparent yeah. or something, you know, I was there just really potentially terrible things that I was imagining. And I don't know if I was right that we were ever in danger of those or not. I don't know. Uh, could have been exaggerated danger. It could have been real danger, but it ended up not happening. And I don't think we're in danger of it now. That's the risk with your, your original second critique of libertarianism, the idea that sometimes you need to, you know, sort of be, you know, be non-libertarian to protect liberty, liberty, uh, going forward, which is sometimes you, you know, over exaggerate or over, uh, emphasize the risk to liberty that you yourself become, uh, you know, the, the, the bully, so to speak, um, even if accidentally or un unconsciously. Maybe it's, it's, I mean, that's just, I think that's also just generally true. Like you never really know how big the danger is until after the thing has happened. Yeah. So you're like, okay, so this could turn into like the third Reich, or it could just be yet another dumb, you know, especially dumb episode in American politics. You just have to make a judgment call, right? You've got to, you've got to say, is this the real, is this the real danger? Is this the real Nazi takeover? Or is this just like somewhat shriller than usual politics amplified by the rise of Twitter? Yeah. And I think that in terms of Trump, there was a, a bit of both. Trump certainly employed some people who would have loved to, inaugurate a new fascist regime had they had the competence to do so uh and just never did 
have the competence to do so. And also at the same time, the Twitter hysterics in the late 2010s reached a pitch that I am just utterly disgusted with now and want nothing to do with now. So I think there was a bit of both. You know, there were there were fascists and there was Twitter hysteria. It's funny, we were talking about how progressive is evolving. It maybe used to be more economic, is now is more social. And that's left a number of people on the left who are like really progressive economically, right? You know, hardcore workers' rights. I mean, in some ways, even Marxist, right? Um, or Marxist sympathetic, but who weren't as excited about some of the social stuff. And in fact, maybe they, they were excited about free speech or I don't know, certain freedoms that, um, you know, have not been uh, sort of celebrated as much in the name of more equity. Um, and that there's this class of leftists who don't identify or progressives, old progressives don't identify with the new progressives, but they don't want to be right wing. So what happens? It, that's just been interesting to watch, too. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, there aren't that many of those people. Yeah, I think that's another movement that like libertarianism was always small numerically and got a larger hearing uh, than it than its numbers actually would reflect. But I, I think it is it is out there. There is that that theme out there. Yeah, Michael Lind comes to mind for me. Catherine Liu is, is a few, um, a few people, but it's a, oh, it's I, I was a, thinking, yeah, I was thinking of people like uh, Lee Fang, yeah, and uh, some people like that, yeah. Um, cool. Well, let's uh, l- l- let's wrap on this. This is a great deep dive into your where does libertarianism go from here, and uh, next time we'll look at one of your uh, your other new recent pieces. Awesome, can't wait. Econ One Hundred and Two is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening.